what's up, tribe? You're listening to the Tribecast at tribejournal.org, a Jewish digital community podcast looking at different things differently. Thanks for joining us. Today, we visit with Adela Kochav. Although Adela tried to graduate quietly, she eventually felt compelled to stand up and be the change. Adela recently graduated New York University and made headlines as a student leader and member of the Jewish community on campus. Continuous threats to Jewish students on campus forced her to take action against the university's inaction. She filed a complaint with the United States Office of Civil Rights. The university eventually opted to settle out of court. Adela successfully sought needed change in university policy, which would offer students protection in the future. She did not seek money. She sought change. This is her story. Burning a French flag in the middle of Washington Square Park, freedom of speech. Can't burn something in Washington Square Park, but would fall under Title VI because nationality is protected. And that would be a case where the university would have to take action. But why not anti-Semitism? Okay, Odella Kachav, welcome, welcome. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you for making the time. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Adela Kochav. My family is originally from Syria and Lebanon. They moved to Mexico City, where I was born. And I moved to the U.S. when I was relatively young. I grew up in a small Jewish community in New Jersey, the Syrian community in Deal. And I went to NYU. At NYU, I got involved almost immediately. I joined all the organizations I could. I joined a sorority. I had a radio show. I joined Hall Council. And I really didn't think that Judaism would end up taking over a lot of my college experience. But by my junior year, I was president of Realize Israel, our Israel advocacy group. I was also representing Jewish students on student government, and I was majoring in Middle Eastern studies. And um, in that year, 2018, a series of anti-Semitic incidents kind of took over my advocacy and everything else I was focusing on before uh, between you know my studies my leadership hopefully applying to law school I had to kind of put on pause because the Jewish community at NYU was under attack in what way there had always been a small anti-Israel presence at NYU but again relatively small uh, small group of students very vocal uh, we didn't really overlap much. They'd have a couple of anti-Israel events. We'd have our pro-Israel events. Every now and then we do demonstrations on opposite sides of the street. Between Apartheid Week and Peace Week, you would have a contrast. Um, and then junior year, they had built a coalition of 53 groups at NYU to boycott not only Israel, the state, but Realize Israel, the student group I was president of. And after, you know, they had the 53 groups cutting us. They also had a resolution on student government. At the same time, they had released a statement that put Zionism in the same category as fascism, racism, and uh, Nazism, actually. Uh, the Jewish community was, of course, very concerned. This is 53 uh, so, groups signed the, the resolution. It was a resolution. What was it? It was a petition? Uh, yeah, they, they had put out a uh, statement on Medium that was supported by the 53 groups, a pledge to boycott. And on medium. top of com? that, I'm sorry? It was on medium.com. Medium. Wow. Yes, on medium.com, they released a petition. Um, I pledged to boycott Realize Israel and torch pack the two Israel groups on campus. Um, and at the same time, they had presented a resolution to NYU student government um, against our NYU Tel Aviv campus. On most campuses, BDS resolutions, the boycott of Israel are hypothetical or some sort of statement but at NYU, because we have an NYU Tel Aviv campus, 
and our student senate feeds into the university senate, it really could have had uh, real world repercussions, not only for you know, what it means to be a Jewish student, but for students who are studying antiquity or theology, uh, it could have jeopardized our operation there. So, you know, as a Jewish student at NYU, I don't have any family in Israel. I never lived in Israel. I don't have any cousins in the IDF. I'm just a Jewish student. I grew up in a you never, Jewish you community. You never did birthright? I went on birthright. I went on birthright my sophomore year. But uh, I never lived in Israel. You know, I, I, my connection to Israel, even, you know, way before birthright, really came through my Jewish community. I went to a Jewish state school. I went to synagogue every Saturday. I grew up as an observant Jew, kosher. Um, and, you know, Israel was never really contested. It was just, you know, I'm Jewish. I was actually, you know, growing up and I heard about anti-Semitism on campuses. I didn't know it would come from an Israel lens. You know, I, I was pretty sheltered. I thought I had like a larger problem with, you know, like the neo-Nazi style type of anti-Semitism. And I really didn't face almost any of that at NYU. Um, you know, once I showed up to campus and I got very involved in campus politics, I was very involved for two years. And then suddenly because I was a Zionist, it made me different from everyone else. And it kind of gave everyone the excuse to boycott an entire community, 53 groups against two, saying it was for political reasons but it didn't feel political, it felt personal. First of all, define for us what you mean when you say it didn't feel political, right? What is political and, what, what it, and how did it not feel that way? And then also what was it and, and why? So for me, political would be a basis of ideology or belief, right? Where I hold a certain position and that position is different from the position of those around me. That's not really how it felt at NYU. It didn't feel like a political take. It didn't seem like a debate or a discussion. It seemed like we were hated. Um, you know, being the only, you know, observant Jewish student in my Arabic class, for example, walking into my class where not a single student would partner with me, and then finally one did, and she started getting boycotted. Um, having my peers who were in my classes go on public record with their school newspaper saying Zionists shouldn't feel comfortable at NYU. I started thinking, is this politics, is it not? And then at the Raven in the Park, we had a big Yom HaTzmaut party and we'll definitely talk about it a little bit later. But one student who was also a former classmate of mine came into the middle of the circle as we were singing Hatikva, which is you know the Israeli national anthem, the culmination of the Jewish hope of 2000 years to be in our homeland. Um, came into the circle, grabbed the microphone from a Jewish girl and started yelling free Palestine and waving his arms in the air. And, um, and she was she was singing Hatikva. He, and he, and she he, was singing Hatikva. And he physically yeah. grabbed the microphone and started taking over the, the, the airwaves, so to speak. Yes, um, until, you know, NYPD hopped in there and was able to get him out before, you know, a mob kind of closed in. Um, the mob and, was you know, closing I, in or... No, as in, you know, you're, you're in the middle of a Jewish student circle. In the middle, there's hundreds of Jewish students seeing Hatikva. And then in the middle, you have this chaotic scene where, you know, in the middle of this piece and dancing and swaying, someone comes in, grabs a microphone, starts yelling, free, free Palestine. And I kind of felt like, thank God, had, had NYPD not gotten in there, everything would have just collapsed. There were more people outside the circle and beyond the crowd that were answering. It's like a chant. Like one person says, free, free Palestine, then the rest 
like echo free free palestine right the chant didn't fully materialize but they had been chanting for hours at that point around the circle especially while we were singing the anthem because at that point you know the music had quieted down person was arraigned it was this, it was actually an assault i mean it was assault and battery what was, what was it no it was just grabbing a microphone and pushing her and shoving her technically that is considered physical assault by the nypd physical line was crossed in an aggressive manner so so i didn't the, ask them yeah the man, look so i didn't he ask was anyone he was arrested to, on the spot and and booked no he wasn't arrested on the spot he was brought out of the circle um they hadn't arrested him at that point but later on that same day they took our 10-foot flag uh tore it into shreds started hanging it from trees and lampposts and he is the one that took that flag originally and that's when it was property theft and damage and the count of physical assault and the physical assault is not a misdemeanor that's a felony and again i i didn't ask for anyone to cross that physical line. I didn't ask for anyone to burn the flag. The narrative was, realize Israel got two students arrested. I didn't get anyone arrested. And YPD was present because it was a large event at the park and their students broke New York laws. Burning the flag, didn't get arrested for it being a hate crime or the fact that the flag, you can't light a fire in a public New York park. You can't even light a cigarette. You can't light a six foot flag on fire. You can't, you can't light that, a cigarette? No, you're not allowed to smoke in public oh, really? New York parks. Yeah. No. Wow. Times they are a change. What about um? Not, I'm not gonna not, I'm not gonna ask about other things that you might be able to like or not. I mean, I was in Washington Square the other like a, a few years ago, and it certainly seemed like a lot of people were smoking something. But anyways. Oh, yep, they are. <laughs> so um. So after that happened, I started thinking: Was this political? Was it not? Was it political? Was it not? And then they unearthed some old tweets of the specific student. The same student that got in the middle saying that he was making a political statement, let's say, by taking the microphone, um, had tweeted some extremely anti-Semitic things, overtly anti-Semitic. We're not talking anti-Israel, we're talking old school anti-Semitism, not even three or four years before. So it, 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 it kind of shows- not mentioning the Zionists, it was mentioning Jews. Jews, got mentioning it. Jews. So that, that so, establishes that it was, that the person may be anti-Semitic, but in the context of the rally, why would that be, why would that be um, not political, but rather racist or anti-Semitic? After that, he was arrested by NYPD and the entirety of the group of the protesters who are fellow students of mine camped out at the courthouse to support his comrades. So the way that we saw it was, you know, as this community at NYU, the Jewish community at large, overtly and overwhelmingly supports Israel. And everyone that says, I don't have a problem with Jews, I just have a problem with Israel. But then they start behaving as a hate group, doing things that you would do as a hate group, where you take one group of people and no matter what they do, they are not worth speaking to, anti-normalization, so do not open dialogue. Comparing them, again, comparing Jewish people to racists and to Nazis, using this guise of politics. So again, it, it provides the perfect excuse. Anti-Zionism is the perfect cover for anti-Semitism because suddenly you can be extremely anti-Semitic and it's okay because it suddenly becomes political.
Now, well, again, I'm not Israeli. And most of the students who were in the park that day are also not Israeli. Right. We were there celebrating our Jewish heritage. We were there celebrating Yom Ha'atzma'ut, the Israeli flag to us as a symbol of our Jewish heritage. And all of that started unraveling. And to me, you know, the, the craziest part is, you know, looking back at everything that happened, I, I'm not sure how to explain it other than, um, okay, so here's a way to put it. So craziest thing, after the, uh, the Raven to Park, not even eight months later, a student tweeted after the Tree of Life synagogue shooting that he wants all Zionists to die. At the same time that a second BDS resolution was proposed to NYU student government. So you have a white supremacist who goes into a synagogue for a mass shooting. And within the same month, you have a not white supremacist, actually a student of color who tweets out he wants all Zionists to die at the same time that our student government is voting on a political resolution to boycott Israel. The Jewish community started feeling like we were being hit by all sides. At that point, watching the Israeli flag burn for us was not political at all. Thinking back to seeing the way that the behavior manifests, it's not a means of political disagreement anymore. Again, we're not even debating things anymore. It just becomes, I'm a Zionist, so I don't deserve to feel safe on my campus as per their statements on the newspaper and all Zionists should die. And how is that different from threats coming from a white supremacist? It doesn't seem different to me. Both groups would condone the burning of an Israeli flag in an instance. Interesting, it's, a, it's an interesting, let me ask you, I'm, again, I'm just, I'm trying to play the objective reporter here. Um, I am Jewish. I'm also observant, and my wife's Israeli. So it's it's not an easy job to be objective, to be completely objective. But um, let me at least attempt. In, in today's political climate in 2020, right right after a very heated election with cancel culture, would you um, re, would you be more amenable to seeing it as a political move? What they were all those things that they were doing. Uh, with the exception of like saying all Zionists should die, you know, that, that I think everyone would agree is, is not acceptable. I mean, that's hate speech and hopefully now Twitter would take that down. But, um, you know, in, in the context of today's political climate, it, is it, has things changed? Has your perspective changed? So I'd say they politicized my identity and who I am. And of course, everyone's entitled to free speech. But there's a certain line that already exists that crosses from freedom of speech to harassment and discrimination. And at NYU, that line was very much crossed. And I try to take a step back and I try to look at it. It, it, was, it, was, it was crossed because of these individuals, right? It didn't feel political, but looking back, is, is it something that, you know, do you think that maybe it was political? That they're, that they're really just defending the Palestinian plight and they see Israel as a imperialistic um, nation that is, you know, is not looking out for the best interests of the Palestinians in a very unilateral way. I look, okay, so yes, I see it as a political issue. And to be fair, again, being fully honest, there were Jewish members of Students for Justice in Palestine. The student that burned the Israeli flag himself was Jewish. We're putting all of the facts out there and I'm not trying to swing a story any other way. But again, the overwhelming majority of the Jewish community at NYU felt attacked when they saw the Israeli flag burn. It doesn't matter to have a token radical 
person that stands up and says, as a Jewish person myself, I don't support this. That doesn't condone the action. Fact of the matter is, the overwhelming amount of the community and the, of the Jewish community at NYU felt attacked. Just like if we're using contemporary examples, if a person of color is overtly, let's say, a Trump supporter, would a black person on the street who supports the Democratic Party and is a strong anti-racist, would they say that person speaks for them? Not necessarily. Would, would they say what? Would they say that the black conservative would speak for them? Probably not. And they would say this is part of a fringe group, but the overwhelming majority of my community, the black community, feels that racism is a systematic problem in the United States and we are being attacked and we are in, you know, the same things that my community felt relatively, again, don't wanna draw a, force, a false parallel. But, you know, again, there were Jewish people themselves who are anti-Israel, but that doesn't justify being anti-Israel. Fact of the matter is conduct. Again, a line already exists between freedom of speech and politics and what is harassment and discrimination. And yeah. for the Jewish community, it was crossed. Now, well, well, another thing, another yeah. thing that I, I think is really important also to talk about is um, conduct versus um, you know speech and actions. Nowadays with cancel culture, again, it's not unusual to see, let's say, an American flag burn. But if for one moment, I cannot even imagine a Jewish student standing in the middle of Washington Square with a Palestinian flag and burning it. Can you? Can you imagine no, no, if the school would do something about it? Can you imagine if, um, would there be statements about it from student government? Do you think that, let's say for example, between the Black Student Union, the Feminist Student Alliance, Latino Student Union, do you think anyone just kind of be like, guess that's politics guys? No, not really. And as I was president of Realize Israel, watching a Palestinian flag burn on my campus, I would overtly say that student does not belong to my organization. I would say their actions were uncalled for. I would kick them out of my organization, had they a member. And I would reach out to students for justice in Palestine and students of Palestinian descent and say, how can my community support you? How can we make you feel more comfortable on our campus as peers? A college campus isn't the entire United States. We're supposed that, to be I'm in a assuming, learning environment. I'm assuming that never happened. Like you didn't- Never. None of these uh, actions, when they hit the press, None of them were denounced by the leadership. No, instead the um, Black and Brown Coalition, which is this group of 53 groups, again, camped out at the courthouse to support their comrades, supporting the flag burning, supporting the physical assault. An able-bodied man against a freshman girl who wasn't even involved in pro-Israel life. She was just part of a Jewish acapella group who was invited to sing at the rave in the park. Again, taking a step back, would the university had made a statement? Would student government had made a statement? And what would we say the student that burned the flag does not belong to be at NYU, burning a Palestinian flag in the middle of the campus, overtly standing by it? And let's take a step back too. That's, you know, a Palestinian flag, a direct parallel. Let's talk about something that would be political, right? That isn't anti-Semitism, it's not religion or nationality or ethnicity. Let's talk about the pride flag. To many considered a political issue. Can you imagine at New York University in the middle of Manhattan had someone burned a pride flag? Political statement. But at that point, would the LGBTQ community have a right to feel scared? Whether or not that flag is a symbol of who they are, if they saw what they considered to be their flag burning, and that made them feel afraid. And now imagine seven months later, someone said, 
all LGBTQ people at NYU should die. You feel like you're being attacked. And that doesn't feel like it's your politics. It feels like it's your identity. And for my community, it was. Again, there's a line between freedom of speech and the conduct that's discriminatory and harassing. When the physical line was crossed, not only a flag burning, which is a visual symbol, but the physical assault against a Jewish student, at that point, the threats we were perceiving weren't perceived. They were real. They were manifested. I had spoken to the administration multiple times about the tension that was rising. And they all told me that I was imagining something that wasn't existing. Or they told me I was overreacting. And I thought I was too. I thought I was too. And when they told me, yeah, you had a big party for Israel in the park, of course it's gonna be protested. Of course your flag's gonna burn. Of course a girl might get assaulted. And I started feeling maybe I put my community in a compromising position. But why should I tone down parts of my identity for someone else? Why should I not be able to exist in my entirety as a Jew and have to check a part of myself because someone else is gonna come and attack me? It doesn't justify their attack against me. A physical assault isn't justified by any sort of politics. That's a physical line. And if people nowadays believe that a physical action is justified by politics, then they really have to be a little bit more introspective. What could the university have done differently? I actually just had my meeting recently with NYU about the settlement. Give us a background. Let's start there. Yeah. So what did you do? Right? You're, you're, you're up against the wall and you felt threatened. You felt like you were being targeted as a Jew. You felt anti-Semitism. What did you do? Uh, so first thing I did was I actually left student government. Um, it became a place that was not conductive to being a Jewish student. Um, the fellow senators I had on student government were again, overtly boycotting me. Uh, no one would speak with me. And the ones who did were, you know, shunned. There were group chats about me. It wasn't a comfortable place. Um, I met with administrators again, every step of the way from the very first mention of Zionism with racism, Nazism and homophobia uh, to the 53 groups, to the resolution on student government, to the apartheid week that had an assault rifle on it and called for revolt to the week of the rave in the park where I said I was worried for the community. After we had the arrest, um, the physical assault, the flag burning, I met with administrators again and I said, look, you can't say I'm overreacting. NYPD has stepped in here because there's been a conduct line that's crossed and the entire organization is supporting the violent acts. You know, these violent aggressive acts aren't even alarming, let alone condemned. They're being applauded. You have to do something. And the school told me, look, yes, you're right. We're going to do something about it, but we're going to do it quietly. You know, we don't want to make like any like overt statements. We, we, we kind of just want to take action on our own. We just ask that you don't draw attention to it. Maybe, you know, don't post on Facebook. Maybe don't post on your personal social media. Maybe realize this role shouldn't hold events for a while and just kind of let this die down. And um, that seemed fair to me. I went back to the Jewish community who was angry and scared, and I had to go back and tell them that the school was going to take action. And they all told me I was being naive. Uh, they all told me that we should take matters into our own hands, which for us doesn't mean burning Palestinian flags. That's not something we'd even consider. For us, uh, they wanted to take legal action. And I said, no, um, you know, I, I was always supported by the Jewish community. The Jewish community always, you know, had my back as they say, but I was their official representative. I was the one that was, you know, leading the steps. And I said, no, we are not going to take legal action. 
we sent a letter to NYU recommending what steps should be taking, taken according to NYU's own conduct policies, which were violated, which would include disciplining SJP, Students for Justice in Palestine, by revoking their club charter, which ultimately is a contract. You receive you know, funds and resources and access from the university every semester, and you get to carry the name of being an official NYU club. That to me sounds like a privilege. And that sounds like your club charter, if breached, can be revoked the same way it is, let's say, for Greek life. But um, we didn't really get a response from that letter. And administrators, again, told us to be quiet. Actually, the embassy was moved within that month and realized the girls didn't even post about it. Um, you know, huge move for the Jewish community, embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and realized Israel didn't even make a post because I was adhering to my end of the deal. Uh, the next semester, again, we had another BDS resolution and I understood, okay, you know, administrations can't get involved. We'll fight this one on our own. At that point, we didn't have any representation on student government because I had left my position and lo and behold, an anti-Israel student replaced me. Um, and, you know, it all started unraveling at that point. I, I again, didn't want to be part of this anymore. I, I figured I did my time. I, you know, I'm going to wait a minute, little minute. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. There we go. We, we needed so, that uh, take, you know? No. Yeah, needed it always. <laughs> there we go. So, um, you know, I, I had represented the Jewish community for two years. I was involved in Jewish community for three years. At this point, I was graduating. I was a senior. And I said, okay, I'm done. I left student government, left my position in Realize Israel, and I just wanted to graduate. That's all I wanted. I wasn't even taking classes in Middle Eastern studies. I was taking dance and creative writing because I didn't want to be involved in this world anymore. And then in April, uh, NYU released that Students for Justice in Palestine would get the President's Service Award. And to me, that was kind of hilarious. I just kind of laughed it off. And friends started texting me and they said, did you hear about the award? You know, the highest award you could get as a student group at NYU going to Students for Justice in Palestine. And I was like, yeah, how funny. And, you know, I started getting more messages like, hey, Adela, the award, the award, uh, did you see this, did you see this? And then finally one friend called me and said like, you, you need to say something. And I said, again, I'm, I'm done. I'm taking my step back. I'm graduating in two months, I'm out. And I said, okay, maybe I'll just make a couple of calls. And remember I had met with eight administrators across five different departments. When we had everything happening at NYU, I went on the wild goose chase they sent me on from student affairs to center for multicultural education to center for student life to student conduct to public safety. Wherever they sent me, I went. And most people don't have that kind of time or that kind of passion or persistence, but I'd already done the goose chase for three years. So I said, let me just finish the slack. And I called and um, you know, I, no one answered and I emailed and no one answered and I called again and no one answered. I called another administrator and they referred me to NYU spokesperson and I called the spokesperson and he referred me to his secretary who told me to call back later. And it just kind of felt like I was on a goose chase again. So I went physically to the vice president of NYU's office. I sat outside on the floor until he came out and he was like, Adela, I don't have time for you. And I said, look, I just need to talk this award. Who gave this award? I just need to understand how it was. And he's like, look, I don't have time. I'll meet with you the first week of May. And I said, I just need 10 minutes. And he said, the first week of May, schedule it with my secretary. And that's when I realized that they don't actually care about making a difference because I was gonna graduate the second week of May. They just kind of wanted to quell things down. And looking back at the decision I made not to take legal action a year before, 
where now Students for Justice in Palestine is getting an award, an exemplary behavior award. And what did I do? I silenced my own community that was angry and had grounds for a case. So I walked out of there and I got in touch with a legal team and I asked if I had a case of sorts. And uh, they told me it would be tough because religion is not necessarily protected under Title VI. But they said my case was so strong. It was so clear that you had discrimination, university knowledge, discrimination, university knowledge, flag burning and physical assault, university knowledge, and then an award had any other group been targeted, there'd be no question about it being a Title VI violation. But why? Because we're Jewish students and people can hide behind politics. Our discrimination's okay. So I said, where do I sign? I knew there'd be a very big chance my case doesn't even fall under Title VI. I understood that. And I knew filing my case publicly would Number one, make me a target. Number two, ruin a relationship with NYU's administration. Number three, cause a lot of problems possibly for me down the line. But I couldn't imagine graduating without filing this big boy grievance, without finally putting some sort of public record where it's like the Jewish community was targeted and we fought back and we tried. And I got my notification from the Office of Civil Rights that my case was accepted and an investigation was launched into NYU. And there was enough found that NYU chose to settle and sign a resolution agreement. So when you say and settle, during, when you say settle financially or? No, I did not ask for any sort of compensation at all. For a Title VI complaint, the only thing that I asked was for NYU to change its policies and regulations when it came to student groups, which is of course, number one, including anti-Semitism, And number two, very importantly, actually enforcing their own policies. Because again, in the letter I sent to NYU's administration, we outlined every policy that was broken by Students for Justice in Palestine, mm -hmm. and none of them were enforced. Why? Because NYU was afraid to make what they would consider to be a political statement. NYU has always stood against BDS. NYU has always been a pro-Israel campus. NYU has a Tel Aviv campus. NYU has a huge Jewish community. But on the ground, what was happening to the Jewish community was attack after attack after attack after attack, and the university just stood by. Again, these were conduct issues. These are things that had it not been Israel-Palestine would again be a no-brainer. Consider Greek life. If two fraternities got into a fight in the middle of Washington Square, fight, Square Park and one fraternity lights the other fraternity's flag on fire, guess what? They're kicked off of campus. Social media, right? They said social media can't extend to student group politics. But in Greek life, if you post a picture as a sorority girl with alcohol, your fraternity or sorority can't recruit for a full semester. There's certain policies that apply to all student clubs or at least to student clubs that have certain special restrictions. But for some reason, when it came to anti-Semitic, like anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic acts, it was okay to do things that wouldn't be okay. Burning a French flag in the middle of Washington Square Park, freedom of speech. Can't burn something in Washington Square Park, but would fall under Title VI because nationality is protected. And that would be a case where the university would have to take action. But why not anti-Semitism? So actually in my case, my Title VI case, I didn't really use the word anti-Semitism. I don't even think I used it once in my supplementary documents, which was you know dozens of pages because anti-Semitism wasn't protected. 
Instead, I had to talk about shared ancestry and common heritage, which is exactly how I see my Judaism and my connection to Israel. It's my shared ancestry, my shared heritage. What is the Israeli flag? A symbol of my shared ancestry and my shared heritage. Why were we all in the park singing Hatikva, the anthem of our shared heritage? Because we were celebrating our shared ancestry and shared heritage. Anti-Semitism wasn't protected, which to me is ridiculous. But what happened was so subjectively, and uh, sorry, objectively a hate crime. It was a targeting of a community, a minority community. And the university just stood by because of politics. And my case was able to prove otherwise. NYU's agreement, again, did not settle anything financially. It didn't settle any of, let's say, for example, um, my medical bills. I had gained a lot of weight. I had always been pre-diabetic. I unfortunately crossed the line where now I'm insulin resistant and on medication. I had to lose weight a lot of, really fast. Um, could have asked them to cover medical bills, nothing. The only thing I wanted was to make a statement and I made it very clear to my legal team. I said, the only thing I want is for NYU to admit that they could have done better and they should have done better. And the executive order that was signed uh, by President Trump to officially include Judas under Title VI could have made all of the difference. Had that been in place- That wasn't, I was that, was, that, that would happened afterwards, right? Happened after. Yeah. Um, you know, I everything we went through at NYU, I filed my Title VI, I graduated. I spent that summer speaking at conferences. December after my graduation, um, after my case had already been accepted by the Office of Civil Rights but not yet settled, I received a call from the White House inviting me to speak on stage with President Trump. I spoke about my case and three days later he signed the executive order on anti-Semitism. And it would have made all the difference. The executive order, what it does, again, because my case was accepted without the executive order. So could a Jewish student technically make the case if they frame it in the right way? Yes. But what the executive order does are two things. Number one, it tells Jewish students that they have a case and that they're protected as any other minority would be. And number two, maybe more importantly, it tells universities that they have to take Jewish students seriously. They can't just sleep it under the rug and hope that it goes away. The legal mechanism is that it's a shared ancestry and, and shared heritage? Yes, shared ancestry or shared heritage or a perceived shared ancestry and shared heritage. Or perceived. That function or perceived. That's how Title VI was originally phrased. Um, well, the Title, VI, order Title VI for the audience is, uh, Title VI is, is specifically race, color, or national origin. Yes. So this is, this is sort of expanding the definition of national origin. Yes, the shared ancestry clause already existed. Um, shared ancestry was part of Title VI. But the way that it could be applied to religions was ambiguous and vague. The executive order just clarifies explicitly that Judaism falls under a shared ancestry. The same way, for example, Islam would. If a hijabi woman is walking on a campus and people start harassing her for her hijab, calling her a dirty Muslim, guess what? That should be protected as well. And under shared ancestry, it is. Under Islamophobia, it's not. And that's the fine line. So, so Judaism was singled out, essentially, yes. to be the, to be the archetypical um, example of a religion. Like, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, I think 
the executive order should have and rightfully uh, mentioned anti-Semitism individually because that's what was being discussed at the time. Anti-Semitism was a rising issue. Anti-Semitism was my case. Anti-Semitism is what needed to be mentioned and Judaism specifically. What I wish the executive order did was, you know, publish an you know, additional addendum, an additional executive order, or just a sentence that says, and this can also be applied to other religions such as. That would have been wonderful. End of the day, the fact that Judaism is explicitly included does set the precedent and does expand the definition enough for other religions, but it didn't lose the fact that it was an anti-Semitic incident. It's not such a question of religious belief as much as a member of the Jewish people. So it, it is a peoplehood. And, and, and that's an age-old um, discussion amongst the sages of Israel, not, not in the question of it, but how Judaism does have an aspect which is uh, religious because it is a theology, but it, but it also has an aspect which is a nationality. Because if you look in you know, the, uh, the Torah, uh, the Jewish Bible, there it lists time and time again the, the people, the, the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel. When it comes to Judaism, we've seen time and time again that if you're Jewish, you're Jewish, right? The best example ever and talks about the Holocaust and World War II, but I'm from the Middle East. My family was in Syria and Lebanon. And they'll tell you that they were completely part of Middle Eastern society. You know, my family growing up in Syria and Lebanon were part of the economic structure of the country. They were always part of the country. And after Israel was founded, whether or not you were a Zionist Jew, suddenly you were Jewish. Take the Farhud in Iraq, which was essentially two days of murdering Jews and destroying Jewish businesses, was what justified because of Israel. If you talk to a lot of Middle Eastern Jews now, they're very Zionist, but if you talk to their grandparents and you ask them, hey, did you support Israel growing up? A lot of them will say it wasn't really a factor or yes, in, in theory, but you know, what was Israel? When my family, you know, my family always says, why is it important for Israel to exist? Because a Jew is a Jew, right? And we need to have a place where a Jew can be a Jew, no matter what, where a Jew can always be safe. So I did ask my grandparents once really seriously, because I felt like the narrative was kind of falling apart in my mind. I said, well, if that's true, when you were leaving Lebanon, why didn't you go to Israel? And he said, because at that point, a Jew could still be a Jew elsewhere. So actually in my case, my title six case, I didn't really use the word anti-Semitism. I don't even think I used it once in my supplementary documents, which was, you know, dozens of pages because anti-Semitism wasn't protected. Instead, I had to talk about shared ancestry and common heritage, which is exactly how I see my Judaism and my connection to Israel. It's my shared ancestry, my shared heritage. What is the Israeli flag? A symbol of my shared ancestry and my shared heritage. Why were we all in the park singing Hatikva, the anthem of our shared heritage? Because we were celebrating our shared ancestry and shared heritage. Let's shift gears a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I, I did a little bit of uh, perusing through Google. There was an interesting article that made a point. Andy Lamy, I, I hope I I hope I pronounced that right. Andy Lamy had an op-ed in the New York Daily News. I don't know if you read that. No, I don't think okay, I did. Okay, so what is your response to, to Andy if he were here right now? You know, pro, number one, pro-Israel organizations employ implausibly broad definitions of anti-Semitism, one that equates criticism of Israel with anti-Jewish bigotry. And number two, that, um, that it's becoming uh, partisan and, and an effort to 
suppress pro-Palestinian activity at public universities. In a sense, the crux of the argument is that uh, free speech is important and you know, this action is going to back, have backlash to make the Jewish students on campus seem like they're suppressing free speech. What, what would, what would, what's your response to that? So, you know, first for the, you know, broad definition that equates criticism of Israel with anti-Jewish bigotry. That's the thing though, it's not about criticism of Israel. It's about being anti-Israel, as in Israel does not have a right to exist and anti-Zionist in that you cannot believe that Jewish people have a claim whatsoever to the land of Israel. Now, ideologically speaking, that's fine. Ideologically speaking, you can believe whatever you'd like to believe. But going back to the second part, which I think Kenneth Marcus said very well, when it comes to the Jewish student safety on campus and to the actions actually on the ground, which should be a conduct issue, the ideology shouldn't justify the conduct. And I think that that is something made very clear and exemplified almost by what was happening at NYU. You know, exactly what Ken Marcus described where Jewish students are feeling unsafe, not because of an ideology necessarily, but because of the actions being taken against their own community. That's an issue. Freedom of speech exists. Someone can go onto a campus and be a racist. They can be a complete racist. They can say racist things. But if they go and target a group of people of color and let's say physically assault one of their members, can they say freedom of speech is protected so my racism justifies my actions? Absolutely not. And it, once you can put a name on it, a racist act of harassment, it's easier to fight. The Jewish community has always struggled with this Israel question, like they said before. Uh, Jewish organizations, especially if they're Jewish organizations, will have a broad definition of anti-Semitism. We're not asking for a broad definition. We're asking for the definition that gets Jewish students protected when it comes to their own safety and to their own college experience, just like every other student that would be protected under Title VI. Title VI already existed. We didn't create Title VI. We're only saying that as Jewish people, we also have a right as a minority to have the protections that Title VI gives to other groups. It's so, an issue of, which also, for example, Palestinian students should also be protected. Why a Palestinian flag would be a national flag? We don't have that, right? Unless it's Israel, but I can't claim to be Israeli, I'm Jewish. And that's where the difference lies. The democratic, majority uh, put a, a civil rights amendment to protect um, disparate impa disparately impacted um, people of race, color, and national origin in line with the, de the standard definition. And the Republicans were against it because to oversimplify it, it's only gonna benefit the lawyers, it's gonna hurt the organizations that are already taxed uh, with additional staff that they're gonna be required to have with additional legal fees, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then the standard motion to recommit essentially is an, an attempt to uplift the language of the act that they were already voting against for different reasons. So when the Republicans voted against the motion, the, uh, against the actual uh, House Resolution 2574, they were voting um, against it regardless of the word anti-Semitism. They, they maneuvered 
uh, that motion to recommit in order to insert the anti to include anti-Semitism in this. And that's what lost act. support from the Democratic. So, so the, the Democrats uh, split um, in, in their vote, which is in, that's going to be the basis of a, of a documentary I hear. But the um, but they split in that vote some, which is unusual. Some some voted with this um, additional language, which ultimately passed, and some voted against it um, and stuck with the sort of party line. And um, and uh, wh what ended up happening in the final adoption of the of the amendment HR two two five seven four was that the Republicans voted against it. So that opened up like a can of worms, you know, it became this like really unclear um, occurrence in the, in the House of Representatives, this legislation, that, that when, we, when we look at that from the outside, if you read the Republican side, then you see, okay, well, this is a, uh, the Republicans voted against anti-Semitism. They didn't want this, um, this amendment to pass. And if you read it from the pundits on the Democratic side, oh, sorry, on the, on the right, the, if you read it from the Democratic yeah. side, so then the Democrat, there are Democrats that voted against including anti-Semitism in this particular um, uh, House resolution. So it becomes this, you know, perfect storm for the pundits to spin how they will uh, their web to capture more, um, you know, PR points and potentially voters to their side of the aisle. What are your thoughts on that? So I think this goes back very well to the quote you gave me from the op-ed in New York Daily News. Um, how they said that including that the executive order to include anti-Semitism in the Title VI protections politicizes Title VI or gives it a partisan agenda. I think that when it comes to discrimination, there shouldn't be a partisan line. I think that we should, you know, the most important thing is to look at the like why does a certain thing exist and is it being fulfilled in the way it currently stands. So Title VI existed, the Civil Rights Act of 1864 existed because people on campus of minority groups were being targeted, discriminated, and harassed. If you have an instance of targeted, targeted discrimination and harassment on a campus against a minority group, a federally and that's funded not campus. being protected, federally funded campus or an NYU's case, which leaves federal tax breaks, tax breaks, even though it is a private university. If you have the same thing, the Title VI is supposed to prevent from happening, happening, and it's happening under the law without violating anything, then it's almost futile. You could say the same thing about the resolution. If the Republicans were against it from the beginning, uh, because they were against what it was trying to do about uh, the whole ideological case, regardless of who was being discriminated against, that's one thing. But if you're against including one other specific group of people, well, it's like, why shouldn't there be that protection that exists too? So I actually had this discussion with NYU, right? So I am a very big supporter of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism which some might label as too broad. And some might label that, some might argue that including the IHRA definition IHRA when is... you're International Holocaust Remembrance Association. Um, the IHRA definition has been endorsed by most Jewish organizations. It is in my mind, the most complete and provides examples of each instance of discrimination that could be considered anti-Semitism. It does include 
anti-Zionism, not criticism of Israel, anti-Zionism, or ways that you demonize the Jewish people using Israel. When I was speaking with NYU, I told them that it is imperative that NYU operate with a complete definition of anti-Semitism when settling the case. I only ask that they change their regulations and enforce them, correct? But they have to do it according to the right definition. And it became this discussion of why, whether NYU should include anti-Zionism in their definition of anti-Semitism. And again, I told them, if what I went through at NYU could have occurred under your new regulations with your vague and broad definition of anti-Semitism, then my case was for nothing. And the settlement means nothing because it doesn't actually change what happened or prevent what could have happened. And that was a very important point for me. Now, going back to you know anti-Zionism in general, um, why is anti-Zionism considered anti-Semitic? We can give a you know three hour lecture on this, but to make it very basic, it's if you have, let's say for example, Chinese students or students of Chinese descent who are Americans who have never lived in China, who support China, let's say the Chinese government politically, and let's say this is the overwhelming amount of Chinese students on campus. And let's say there's an anti-Chinese group on campus that's against China's government and start burning Chinese flags. Those students would at that point be right in feeling afraid. No other student of any national descent is asked to answer for the actions of a government. And if they are for the most part, they're not usually attacked for it. Like even if they support the government that they're coming from, they're never really asked to have this public litmus test. The Jewish people are. So uh, again, like it's going back to this like national debate of what constitutes a peoplehood. So when it comes to the resolution, again, it's, it's interesting because it, if you're against, like, again, like I hate to say this, but Title VI, I think, is a little bit very expansive. As in like Title VI, how can you prevent discrimination? How does that play with freedom of speech? But whether Title VI should exist in the first place is the equivalent of whether the Republicans would have voted to pass this resolution with or without the anti-Semitism language. But that's not what we're talking about. If it already exists, it should include anti-Semitism. Any closing remarks? No, quick note, because this might come up, so I think it's important. Yeah. The executive order was passed or signed by President Trump. I was invited on stage by President Trump. I'm not a US citizen. I've been living in the US for 19 years under different visas, always legally, under different visas. I've applied for a green card three times, twice under Obama, once under Trump, neither or none of the times have I received a green card. I don't consider myself partisan. I can't even vote. I don't overtly support either party. I care about issues on both sides. I actually help, helped found one of the first anti-racist organizations within the Jewish community, um, Syrian Jewish community, because it didn't exist before. I stood up for Israel on campus and that was not popular, nor was it easy. I stood up against racism within the Syrian community and that wasn't popular and it was not easy. Why did I stand on stage with President Trump? If the leader of any country, a sitting president, be it of Mexico, a European president, you name it, said anti-Semitism is a problem, your case caught my eye, and I'd like you to talk about anti-Semitism on stage, I'm of course taking that platform.
And I got to speak about my own experiences and what my community went through in front of a national audience. And it's gone international. I've spoken at multiple international conferences across Latin America specifically. Why? Not because I was endorsing a candidate, but because I spoke up for my people and I got something done. An executive order was prompted with my case as a basis and NYU is the first university to settle under the Title VI executive order. The way NYU behaves right now can set the precedent for every other Title VI case involving anti-Semitism. And that's a very big responsibility. And I hope that NYU takes it seriously. But more importantly, taking a step back, especially after the election, good legislation shouldn't be discounted because you believe it came from a bad place. If protecting Jewish students came from a place you disagree with, it doesn't mean you should disagree with protecting Jewish students. We shouldn't turn any of this into a partisan issue and adding anti-Semitism to Title VI and then claiming it turns it into a partisan agenda-driven protection would be the same thing as arguing from the other end that protecting racism is endorsing the Democratic Party. It shouldn't be, and it should never be this way. And it should never be a fight between either party of who cares about the Jews the most because our lives aren't pawns to be bargained with. They don't have to prove to us and tell us that how much they care about us. It's more important that they actually take the actions to put their power where their mouth is. If you have the power to make things better for people in your country, don't just say you should support me because the other party is anti-Semitic. Maybe you should take the steps to make sure anti-Semitism doesn't occur. And if that means taking existing protections and giving them to people who need it, because again, had a flag of any other person been burned on the campus of any other group of people of any other country, ethnicity, national origin, it would have been protected, but not for us, that becomes a problem. It's about equality. It's about giving the equal rights to everyone else. Burning a Palestinian flag should be outrageous and it should be something that the school stands against. And it is something protected by Title VI. But when it came to the Israeli flag at that moment, it wasn't. And that was wrong. Adela Kochev, thank you so much. Changing the world. We look forward to uh, maybe another interview in, in, in five and 10 years, seeing where you're holding by then. Hopefully a citizen of the United okay. States and I'm sure making a, a very big impact on the world. Thank you so much. I'm JP Katzen. You're listening to the Tribecast at tribejournal.org. Thanks for joining us.